Great Science Podcast. My name is Tyler Bublitz, and welcome to the Nativity of Our Lord Christmas Day for the week of December 25th, 2022. I'm excited to have you here. I'm excited to dig into this week's podcast, and I'm excited because we have never in the history of the podcast had Christmas Day fall on a Sunday, and thus I have never been able to officially talk about these texts. So it's a little terrifying But it's also really exciting because, one, the cool thing with this is the Nativity of Our Lord is kind of also used for the same Sundays for Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. And it's been always something that I've kind of wrestled with internally as we come to this time of year is that I never talk about these. I always get the Sundays around them, and so you can kind of bring up Christmas, but you can't ever – you never get the actual text to dig into and really tear apart. And this year we do. Which also makes it terrifying is this also means that I'm trying to build this in a way that for the next few years until we get another either December 24th, which should be next year, the 2023, but also kind of in the future being able to have some stuff so that people can actually go back to and look on with these texts. This also means one of the things is there are three different propers for this Sunday, proper one, proper two, and proper three. We will be covering all these texts this week, which means there's just a lot to cover. But before we jump into that, we have to get into the question that we had for last week, which was, where have you rejected instead of accepted in something that's new? And it was interesting to kind of hear kind of the gamut that we heard this week. We heard it from the perspective of someone who has gotten a lot older and kind of reminiscing back to their youth and watching their father kind of reject some of the different technology and their mother rejecting different technology that have become staples in our society now. And I got another response kind of talking about how Even today, there's times where there's things that we hold on to that we long for that are older that we want to hang on to. Heck, one of my hobbies is I really like vintage drums, partially because there are certain things that I feel are designed better, thought through differently. But I'll also acknowledge that there are things that are better in modern drums than vintage drums. There is definitely some things that are better, but I prefer the older drums. But I think it's this idea of we can so easily put up a wall to deflect, can so easily put up a wall to make it more difficult for us to be able to accept in this good news. And it's so easy for us to overlook things. And especially with where we will eventually get to this week, I think it's so important for us to be remembering that. So let's just jump into this. So I'm going to start with proper one. Now, the thing I will also tell you is there's a lot of threads that run through these texts a lot. And I'll try kind of pointing some of those out, but also realize it makes some of this a little bit more muddy. So hang with me. I'm going to do the best that I can to kind of try to make this as clear as possible. So we are starting then with the Old Testament text for proper one being out of Isaiah chapter 9 verses 2 to 7. One of the interesting things with this Isaiah text is that this was a passage used originally as an oracle from the coronation of the Judean king, probably Hosea, which is 
is celebrating the ascension of a new king with the traditional ideas of the Davianic kingdom. And this is coming from my Harper Study Bible. But it's this idea, again, that it's crazy to think that this is coming from a coronation. But the text that we actually have does tie beautifully into this idea of Christ coming. And it starts right away in verse 2. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have lived in the land of darkness, on them light has shined. And this idea of how in the text of Isaiah, but also even as we are getting presented with Jesus, that this new light is coming that is going to bring forth a new way of looking at things. It's going to trample on these old things that needed to be blot out, but yet this son of God is going to become this everlasting peace, this prince of peace, the everlasting father, mighty God, wonderful counselor coming from verse 6. This idea of how the kingdom of God will be brought near because of this. Now, one of the things that I did find that was super interesting this week is the Psalms. Between all three, we have consecutive psalms. So Psalm 96 for one, Psalm 97 for another one, and Psalm 98 for another one. I found that fascinating, interesting, and again, one of these things that you never realize unless you're looking at all of these together. But this Psalm 96 is, again, a hymn of praise to God as a ruler and judge. The Lord of Israel rules the universe and does so in righteousness. Again, coming from the Harper Study Bible. But again, this summation of how God is coming to declare things to the nations that is worthy to be praised and honored and looking at and acknowledging the power and what God has done and how joyful we should be that we have a God who is willing to come near and it's be within our creation. Then our New Testament text for this proper one is from Titus chapter 2 verses 11 to 14. We will revisit Titus later. We have to remember this is a letter from Paul to Titus who is in the area of Crete and Crete has some issues that are going on in the aspect that they are known as very deceitful people. But Paul sees this as a key cornerstone because it was also a major port city. So this idea of how Titus is being sent to reestablish the church, give new leadership, and so that there isn't as much internal corruption that was going on within the church. But in this, we have this recognition of how Paul is telling Titus to train these leaders within the church. For by the grace of God has appeared in the salvation and that we should be training them not to be looking at these worldly passions, but again, be looking for this manifestation and the hope that comes through Jesus Christ, which again, while we're post resurrection here, that he gave himself that we might be redeemed from all iniquity and purify for himself a people of his own who are zealous for good deeds. So this idea of how when we are walking in the way of Christ, that we put aside these human temptations to become more like Christ and that we want to be more and more like Christ. And that's then what our driving force is. 
The gospel text then for this week is out of Luke chapter 2 verses 1 to 14 and optionally 15 to 20. This is the familiar Christmas story where you have Emperor Augustus sending for the whole world to be registered. You have Joseph bringing Mary on a donkey, we presume, to Bethlehem. They don't have any place to find, but they give birth in the stable, and she gives birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes because there was no room for them in the inn. And then there were shepherds keeping watch over their flock by night, and the angels appear to them, telling them of this great news, and that how they will find the child. And then you get this glory to God of the angels who are celebrating with the shepherds. Then the shepherds go and tell Mary all these things, and Joseph and Mary treasures them in her heart, and this glorification of what is going on. But also the humbleness of it. Outside the shepherds, we're really not getting a lot of praise. We're getting all this stuff. They're celebrating the birth of a child that more seems like a humble thing. It more seems like a normal everyday thing in a lot of ways also. Not very much different. But as we know, going through the scriptures, this will change everything going forward. So proper two, let's jump into that and some of the differences that we have in here. The Old Testament text then for proper two comes out of Isaiah chapter 62 verses 6 to 12. I this week really did like using this Harper Study Bible and this section here goes through the anticipation and vindication and restoration of the holy city of Jerusalem And again, this idea of how what we may anticipate and how God reacts is different. Again, how we now being on this side of the cross recognize that the restoration of Jerusalem in a lot of ways came through Jesus. But yet here they're looking at more of as a physical city. And we have to remember this is right as the people are being overthrown by another group of people coming in and destroying what they had. But yet that God has continued to recognize what has gone on and is continuing to proclaim to the people, I see this and I will restore this. I will not forget you. I have not forgotten you. The psalm that goes with this then is Psalm 97 as we continue in this three psalm continuation text. And this is a hymn of praise to recognize the rule of God. This is one recognizing that God has been there from the foundations of the earth, that God created all this and how the whole earth recognizes God's power and will bend at God's need to be able to do all this. It is a praise psalm. It is a recognition psalm. It is a beautiful piece to recognize that again, how God is in control of what is going on. The New Testament text then that goes with that is the continuation jumping a few verses further into Titus chapter 3 verses 4 to 7. This then is continuing kind of a little bit of that discussion that we were just having, but how did Christ come and present himself? But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of any works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy through the water of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. This Spirit is poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. This 
Spirit is poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This idea of how God did all this for us and did this through Jesus, not anything that we did, but out of grace toward us. The gospel text for this proper two is out of Luke chapter two, optionally verses one to seven and eight to 20. So again, the exact same gospel text, focusing a little bit more on that second half and a little bit more of what is going on with the shepherds, whereas the first one is goes through more of recognition of the birth of Jesus and then the angels going and proclaiming it to the shepherds. The final group of texts for proper three then is from Isaiah chapter 52 verses 7 to 10. And this is again coming from the Harper Study Bible. God's salvation is announced to Jerusalem and displayed before the whole world. This idea of how God then is proclaiming this good news and it is going to change how everything is looked at. Break forth together into singing your runes of Jerusalem, for the Lord has confronted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. This recognition of how God is going to take what looks to be destroyed and bring a new banner and hold it up proudly, coming there from verses 9 and 10. The psalm that goes with this continues on this little rampage that we've had of Psalm 98, all nine verses of it. And this is a hymn celebrating the salvation given by God as a ruler and judge coming from the Harper Study Bible. This idea of how, why wouldn't we be giving praise to God? Why wouldn't we be looking at the steadfast love of what God has done, the making a joyful noise for all the earth and how God continues to be with us and doing all this stuff and thus recognizing this and wanting to acknowledge what God has done. The New Testament text then for that is coming out of Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 to 4 and optionally 5 to 12. Hebrews we have to remember is a book that we don't know entirely who the author is but it's this section here of reminding us of what God through Jesus has done. That the heir of God, being able to see and having God live in amongst us, to be able to wear our clothing and be able to be with us, is the recognition of how God wants to become near. Coming from verse 4, having become as much superior to angels as names, he has inherited more excellent than theirs. For to which of his angels did God say, you are my son today, I have begotten you. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. But no, this idea of how God has given of part of God's self to come near and be part of the earth to welcome us into the family. The gospel text that goes with this is out of John chapter 1 verses 1 to 14. And I would argue one of the more beautiful poetic sections of scripture. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being 
In him was life, and life was the light to all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. And then we get into the beginning of John that a man was sent to witness and testify to the light, even though it was not the light, but to open up the path of where God was coming. And that this was the beginning of having God's Son come, be enfleshed, and live among us so that we can see the glory of God and through the Father's Son, full of grace and truth. So, before we jump into how faith and science come together this week, we have to do our shameless plug. Working Preacher, if you haven't heard of Working Preacher, I'd highly recommend it between their Sermon Brainwaves podcasts, their commentaries, their discussions. Since I'm not an ordained minister, I use them on a weekly basis to help give me some direction, especially on difficult weeks like this. Along with having all their commentaries, discussions of other biblical scholars, I find it extremely helpful. So if you haven't checked out workingpreacher.org, I'd highly recommend it. I'd also highly recommend, and especially on a week like this, I really appreciate the Revised Common Lectionary coming from Vanderbilt's Divinity Library. I really enjoy it. Again, as I've talked about before, the art, the hymns, the colors, the prayers, all these different resources that are there. But I really enjoy having all the different texts laid out right there for me to be able to look and see and be able to use all these texts. So if you haven't checked out the Revised Common Lectionary coming from Vanderbilt's Divinity Library, I'd highly recommend that also. That was a lot of text. That was a lot to get through. But I think we have a story here that we need to look at and reiterate, especially when it comes to a story as in the manger story that so many of us are so familiar with in so many ways. But one of the things that really stuck out to me as I was going through this is the humbleness of it all. Yes, we have the shepherds coming to celebrate with Mary and Joseph, But in a lot of ways, there isn't a ton of fanfare necessarily right around them. The angels appear to the shepherds to go and celebrate to actually make this a thing. Otherwise, nothing much had happened. A baby had been born in a manger. Nothing crazy about it. There wasn't anything that was super awe-inspiring about it. And again, this is the affirmation of all these promises of God being able to restore and come back and is going to do all these great things. And we assume that it's going to be this majestic way of doing it. And yet again, it's this one of these surprises on how God does not always work that way. When I was looking for a science tie-in with this, I was looking at like white blood cells and trying to look at that. I felt like one of the things, especially with it being more of recent news, is looking at discovery of fusion and how this has great potential. This has great, amazing potential to be able to power so many different things, but we're such in the early stages and it's so hard to be able to forecast what's actually going to happen. But then I stumbled across something else and it's a story that I haven't heard told this way and I think it's important for us to look at it this way. And the story is DNA. If I asked you who is the founder, the person who discovered DNA, who would you say? I think a lot of people would say James Watson and Francis Crick. And I would say, I would hope you're including Rosalind Franklin in that. that. But none of those are actually correct. The correct answer is Friedrich Mischner, who discovered it in 1869. This is right after Darwin's origin of species. He is a Swiss-German scientist who is wanting an experiment, goes to it as his advisor. He says, how about you dig into the nucleus 
And so he goes over to the hospital and gets some of the old bandages and scrapes off the white blood cells because they have nucleus and takes that and then works on separating out the nucleus. And he gets what he calls nuclein, which in 1878, a German scientist of Kassel then was able to separate out the nucleon and nucleic acid and later being able to kind of get into the neonucleic bases of adenine, guanine, cytosine, thymine, and later uracil. And that starts to kind of figure some of that stuff out around the turn of the 20th century. And this discovery leads to Kossel getting the Nobel Prize for Medicine in 1910. But again, There isn't a ton fully understood about what this DNA stuff is. Around this time, they are figuring out that genes are associated with chromosomes, and they know that the chromosomes are made up of this DNA and protein, and so then they're wondering if that's where traits are coming from. And the hypothesis at the time is that it has to be the protein. Because there's only four subunits plus uracil, five for RNA, which is a whole nother thing for a whole nother day. But because there's over 20 plus subunits to protein and how complex we are, we assumed that it had to be protein, that the traits to be inherited by people have to be passed along through protein. But in 1944, in the Rockefeller Institute in New York City, 4344, Oswald Avery, Colin McLeod, Macklin McCarthy worked together and were able to take the bacteria pneumococcus, which causes pneumonia, and took a benign version of it and was able to take from a virulent strain, so that's with the disease of pneumonia, and the benign not, and took the DNA from the virulent form and put it into the benign and was able to take that bacterium pneumococcus and get it so that it became virulent, so it had the pneumonia within it and descendants after it having that, thus showing that traits and inheritance was coming through DNA, not through the proteins. This was a huge discovery and really kind of shook up what was going on at the time. It wasn't until the early 1950s of that's when we started getting Watson and Crick getting into their studies. And as we've talked about before, also should get some recognition toward Rosalind Franklin, who actually took the picture and just was published after Watson and Crick, who arguably potentially stole the image to actually confirm what they were seeing. The reason I bring up the whole story of what had happened with DNA is we recognize now how important this was. But when Frederick Mishner initially discovered what he called nuclein, it wasn't that important. It wasn't that big. It wasn't really a thing. And it took nearly 75 years to really get to a point where we started understanding what the heck we had actually discovered. And we look at now in the modern medicine and the world in which we're in, how vital DNA is to be able to understand how 
to turn on and off different traits within us to be able to actually better cure us or see different things where we're more likely to have or be able to work on when there is something that is causing disease, how do we go in and disrupt it enough to be able to have our body be able to recover? This understanding of DNA and Watson and Crick getting us to the point along with Russell and Franklin, getting us to the point to understand that it's a double helix shape, getting us to the foundations of understanding and being able to sequence the genome later is huge. But it initially didn't look like it was that big of a thing. When we look at the birthing story of Jesus, it appears as a small thing. The angels are making big noise about this. And the shepherds go and tell this stuff to Mary. But yet in the end, it's a child laying in a feeding trough. It looks like a young mother, at minimum, we don't really know how exactly how old Joseph is, presumably still pretty young, but potentially a young couple who don't have a ton of money, we would assume, because they're getting to the city late, they aren't able to get a hotel, they're staying with the animals in a less than desired place, this humble beginnings, and yet we realize what Jesus will do revolutionizes and changes so many things about how we look at life and heck why we're even listening to this now if jesus comes in on a white horse and just does it all do we have the relationship that we do with god this understanding of what god did in coming in a humble beginning gives this story and gives us the understanding of our creator as a humble beginnings gives us this point that makes it easier for us to be able to relate to our creator, makes it so it's easier for us to have this relationship that God so desires to have with us. When I look at the DNA story and look at how much our thought has evolved to be able to understand what DNA actually was, to be able to springboard us into a whole new wave that we are still in the middle of, of understanding how reading our genome can affect and change how we do medicine. I look at Jesus doing the same thing for us. The simple, humble beginnings of understanding really what DNA was in our bodies that had been there for thousands of years and we finally get around to understanding it in a place where we can actually understand it to a place where here we are on the other side of the crucifixion looking back and now more and more understanding what Christ actually did, what God actually did for us. That's what's amazing. That's what's impressive. That's what makes this story so memorable. That's why we come back to it time and time and time again. And I think this moment to recognize that our God notices the small things and is wanting us in certain ways to notice what we think is insignificant. Notice the things that seem insignificant because they can change the world. DNA shows us that. DNA shows that what we looked at as this doesn't even look important. It's probably the proteins that have the traits in them anyways. It's just this weird other thing. It's not nearly complicated enough for it to be the way that our traits are passed on generation to generation. And then God's like, no, you guys have it all messed up. I don't need 20 plus combinations. I need four. 
I need four subunits to be able to get this stuff to work. And you're a cell for RNA, for duplication. I think this reiterates the God that we have. I think it reiterates this idea that God isn't wanting to hide away from us. I think this reiterates the idea that God is wanting to be near and wanting us to understand. And that's part of why God came in so humble. So the question I have for you this week is, what things have you typically overlooked that now you're going to slow down to observe? What things do you typically overlook that now you're going to slow down to observe? I think in the world in which we're in, it's something that we all need to work on. We all need to be able to figure out those ways to be able to do that. Because that is when I think we start getting better glimpses of God and we are able to draw nearer to God. And then that relationship between God and us gets stronger. It is so amazing that God was able to come in in a humble way and not do it with all the fanfare that God could have. God goes and gets the shepherds, the lowest of the low in society, and tells them to go and celebrate with him. That they're the ones who gets to see the glorious light of God through the angels. They get to hear the angel chorus and all that. All the amazingness goes to the lowest of the low. And then they have to go and tell. It's not even Mary and Joseph gets to see the fanfare. But yet we know that this is the beginning of setting something in motion that's going to change things forever. And I think in our lives, there's so many different things that we can quickly overlook or cast doubt on and miss what God is actually trying to do. As we are entering now into the Christmas season, make sure to stop and pause and recognize these amazing things that God is doing. Because if we don't, we're missing those opportunities to actually interact with God. So for all the viewers and listeners all over the world, Merry Christmas, Happy Christmas if that's where you're at. And I pray that you are in the spot where we actually can slow down and recognize the amazingness of what God has done. So we'll wrap this up as we always do. I pray God blesses you through your faith and amazes you through science. Merry Christmas. And I'll see you next year.